welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello, welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. And today I am joined by Henry Ergas, who is one of Australia's leading economists and currently, wonderfully for him, resident in Paris and not in lockdown in the eastern part of Australia. Um, Henry, before moving to Paris, was the inaugural Professor of Infrastructure Economics at the University of Wollongong, and he has had extensive teaching experience at universities, including at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, the University of Auckland, and the École Nationale de la Statistique et de l'Administration Économique in Paris. I hope my French pronunciation is okay there. Very much uh, schoolgirl French there. Uh, He is also the author of a chapter in the book published by Conacourt, Menzies, The Shaping of Modern Australia, and the chapter is entitled The Wealth of the Nation, and he co-authored that chapter with Jonathan Pincus. And today we are discussing Sir Robert Menzies' economic legacy, and a lot of what we will discuss can be referenced in that chapter, particularly the the data in that chapter. But welcome to Afternoon Light, Henry. It's wonderful to have you on our podcast. Thank you for inviting me. And and Henry, you have obviously written a lot about the, the Menzies' economic legacy Sir Robert Menzies, when he came to government as Prime Minister in 1949, came at a, at a critical time post-World War II when the Australian economy was really in need of uh, a lot of attention and there was a lot of real desperation for growth and, and increased prosperity. And he left in 1966 an Australia that was much richer, it had a much larger population and uh, it was a much better educated population. It's said by John Howard, former Prime Minister, that Menzies' greatest legacy as a statesman was to lay the foundations of modern Australia. The economic prosperity of the 1950s ensured a good life for larger numbers of Australians than ever before. I would like to hear your views on on what created that tremendous prosperity of the Menzies era, in your view. Well, the first thing to say is that it certainly wasn't a prosperity which one could take for granted. Um, It's important to remember that when uh, Menzies returned to power, to office as prime minister, Australia had been through a harsh depression and of course the war years. And both periods were periods of great privation and of widespread hardship The world at the end of the Second World War and in the period of the immediate post-war reconstruction was one of extreme uncertainty geopolitically and economically. And by and large, if you go back to that period, most observers were really quite gloomy about what would happen to the world economy 
and to Australia's place within it, as well as, of course, being fearful in terms of the geopolitical environment and the enormous threats that it placed at a time when nuclear war or atomic war, as it was then called, seemed like a very distinct possibility, if not a relatively high probability. And so that was the context within which the new government came to office. There had been crippling strikes just before it returned to office. There had been a, an attempt at nationalisation of the banks, which would have had enduring effects in terms of damaging the financial system and through it the economy more generally. And yet, as it turned out, the 50s and 60s were periods of enormous growth and prosperity. So what underpin that? Well, in narrowly economic terms, the answers are clear enough that what underpinned it was a very high investment rate associated with a high growth rate of population and of family formation. And the high investment rate was the product of very significant private investment in uh, virtually every sector of the economy, but notably in manufacturing. Though there was also very substantial investment in service sector and in agriculture. And as well as that, a very high rate of investment in residential construction. And that high rate of investment in turn was associated with very low levels of unemployment. I mean, levels of unemployment that we would find unimaginable even against the relatively high employment, low unemployment, Howard years, uh, but very low levels of unemployment. I remember that at one point, I believe it was in Adelaide, there were three three people who were registered as unemployed. <laughs> it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Hard to imagine three people registered as own. Wonder what they were up to, those three people. <laughs> Wonder yeah, yeah, who knows? Maybe they were loafers or maybe they were <laughs> But as it so that very high employment rate in turn was associated with muted growth in wages, particularly in the basic wage, which was effectively frozen for a long period of time and very strong growth in the labour force. So you had all these things coming together. You had strong population growth, strong family formation, high level of investment. And in economic terms, that explains the boom, as it were. But of course, surrounding that and making it possible was a relatively stable economic policy framework and a great deal of confidence, ultimately, in the way the economy was being run. I've wanted to talk about the um, increase in the in the labour market in the um, population. That was obviously one of the key features of the of the Menzies era. Uh, the population grew. I think in nineteen forty nine, it was about eight million people in Australia. It grew to um, over eleven point seven million people by the time Sir Robert retired in nineteen sixty six. So huge, huge population growth and, of course, driven really by immigration from from Europe. Uh, 
what was there much opposition to that immigration? I think because immigration in Australia has always had a um, you know, there's always been deep political debates about about the virtues of it and the the identity of immigrants, and of course we have a history of the white Australia policy too, which is a feature of of the Menzies era and, and governments before that. There was clearly bipartisan agreement on it prior to the the sort of end of the of the Menzies um, era. The desirability to increase the population was really about a priority over extensive growth rather than intensive growth. So there was much less of a focus on on per capita incomes growing, more about the overall economy growing, which of course is a, a technique that's been used up until COVID by governments in Australia as well. But what were the political debates and the or the policy debates around immigration like at the time? It's important to remember that it wasn't only immigration that fueled population growth. There was also the baby boom and of course, my uh, my pet, well, my father was a product of that, as were you. <laughs> Indeed. So those of us who are boomers are very proud of that period yeah. because it produced upstanding, outstanding people <laughs> like your father and even a few people like me. But, you know, you can't always get it right. So there was a very substantial natural increase in population associated with a very, very high rate of family formation and that fueled demand for residential construction and an important component of the of the 1950s, early 1960s growth story was that the Menzies government removed the remaining restrictions on residential construction to associated with rationing of building materials. And that allowed a residential investment construction boom to occur. And it facilitated the government facilitated home ownership in a broad range of ways, which led really to the kind of Australia that we've in a sense grown used to, or at least have in our minds, even though it's now changing somewhat, where everyone owned their own home, which had not been the case really until then. So there was a natural population growth and then immigration on top of it. Now, historically, Australia was a country of very significant immigration, And in the 1920s, there had been a sustained effort to boost immigration after a rather fallow period immediately before then. And that effort had had very mixed results. And uh, ultimately, of course, the Depression brought it to an end. And so when the post-war era started, both sides of politics believed that it was significant and uh, indeed crucial to expand Australia's population. I wouldn't necessarily say that that was entirely economically driven. Indeed, it obviously wasn't. It was, on the contrary, there was a view that became known as populator parish, uh, that had been known as populator parish, that essentially Australia needed to be a larger country so as to be able to defend itself in a highly uncertain world. And that imperative of national defense then uh, coalesced uh, almost naturally with the dominant economic ethos of the period, which was the goal of what was known as national development. 
And national development was really the idea that Australia was a small economy waiting to become a big economy. And that the way you became a big economy was that you became bigger. And you became bigger by having more people, more capital, more of everything. And that what government's role was, was to accelerate that process of what economists call factor accumulation. That is, of uh, increasing the stock of labor and of capital in, in the economy. Uh, was there huge debate about that? There was certainly debate about investment. There was what uh, later became known as a degree of capital xenophobia in the sense that uh, there was concern about the growth in foreign investment in Australia. The bulk of that came later. Political concern about that really grew over the period. Uh, with respect to migration as such, there was, I think, broad agreement that it needed to increase. Where there was debate was about its composition. Yeah, That was politically extremely sensitive. And that had been sensitive under Caldwell. It remained sensitive uh, under the coalition years. And it took a long time for that really to settle. So in, in in contemporary more contemporary debates about immigration, we've had, you know, to put it simply, people who are on the side of a big Australia, which obviously the, the Menzies era was on the side of a big Australia, that, that idea of national development providing a, a defensive mechanism to um, the security challenges, as well as that sense that Australia was a was an immature country, a young country, and needed to needed to grow into a mature country, and a mature country by definition had a a more complex economy, but also a, a bigger population. Um, but but on the other side, we have of, of contemporary debates people who who like a smaller Australia for for various sort of reasons of sustainability, or or perhaps just they don't see a particular economic need or interest in in a bigger population. So it it was clearly much more bipartisan to embrace a a big Australia back in in the 1950s and 60s, but as you said it was the identity of the of the migrants and that and that changed over time as we saw the flows of European migration. You had people from from Great Britain, the you know, the um, UK, and then and then that changed to Southern Europeans, and of course um, post post uh, Menzies era, and the abandonment of white Australia then had immigrants from from nearer nearer neighbours um, across Asia. So it's quite interesting to observe those changing political dynamics when it comes to immigration, and of course the impact that has on the economy. Yeah, no, that's 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 certainly true. Look, the situation in the 1950s and 60s was in some respects different from that today in that we did seem to be sparsely populated and a lot of the growth that could occur and did occur, which nowadays people would perhaps criticise and which was criticised in the period to some extent, particularly by people interested in the aesthetics of our cities and so on. But the growth that, that occurred was essentially urban sprawl. I mean, what happened to, to, to Australia really was that we had extensive growth of the economy, but we also had extensive growth in that we covered more of the territory. So places like Sydney developed out, Melbourne developed out, and so on. 
And in that kind of extensive growth, the issues associated with congestion and crowding are much less important uh, because population is being, to at least some extent, dispersed over the territory. The difference today is that a lot more of the growth occurs within settled areas. And so issues, for instance, associated with congestion become more significant. And it also becomes much costlier to expand infrastructure. If you're increasing population or settlement radially, then you're essentially building in greenfields sites where the costs of building are quite low. If you're trying to expand the road surface in inner Sydney or to improve traffic flow in the heart of, of uh, crowded areas, crowded suburbs, then that's very, very costly. And you have to tunnel and do yeah. all these things. So the issues at the time were, were, were seen very, very, very different. People's expectations were also much lower. Uh, expectations, for instance, in terms of what kind of infrastructure they had. You know, places like Brisbane had enormous extensive growth in the settlement area, but very little growth in the sewerage network. Until oh, the really? Goodness me. Oh. Most of the new areas didn't have piped sewerage. And, oh, yeah. And, and if you, you were dealing with people who were coming from, certainly if they were coming from, from the Mediterranean, from Southern Europe, they had lower expectations. They came to work and they came to have a better life for their children. And and so all of that made made those lower levels of infrastructure provision more acceptable. Yeah, well, certainly the the migrants of the fifties and sixties were highly motivated, weren't they, to work and to save, and they needed to do that to buy a house. And of course, home ownership um, increased enormously during the the Menzies era. I think from forty nine percent in nineteen forty nine to seventy percent, it finished up in nineteen sixty six. But it's often talked about that that Menzies wasn't very interested in economics, in economic policy. He was incredibly interested in certain policies like education and, of course, became very, very well known. And one of his great legacies is, is the work he did as an international statesman. But, but as an, an economic philosophy, is there something that you can characterise Menzies as, as having? It obviously, was the age of, of Keynes and there was that focus very much on extensive economic growth and full employment, not really a focus like we have today on taxation rates and the expenditure of governments to to redistribute income. He was very, very passionate about the about driving private enterprise and even in his Forgotten People speeches, he's he's a real passionate advocate for the importance of that for individual dignity. But he did have a much more expansive view of the role of government than the modern-day Liberal governments have these days, although actually COVID's probably turned that back on its head and we're back to a more Menzian view for the conservative side of politics of the role of government. But but what, what do you think, Henry, about Menzies' economic philosophy, if, if there was one? I think at the heart of Menzies' economic philosophy was the notion that really the role of government was essentially to make it possible for people to help themselves. And in that sense, 
The primary goal was to promote private initiative, be it in terms of providing for oneself or in terms of establishing uh, enterprises and creating wealth for the nation. So that that was really at the heart of the objective and that the role of government was to make that possible and to do what it could to ensure that people would would help themselves. They would save, they would invest, they would set up businesses and do all the things that would be wealth creating over the longer term and would make Australia a, a richer uh, and more secure country. Now, that didn't mean that government had no role. On the contrary, Menzies was very pragmatic in terms of what governments could or should do. But the role was a supporting role rather than as the lead actor. It, it was the it was the it was the scenery. It wasn't the play. And the play was being played out by the people on the stage. And the people on the stage were were individual workers, were families and farmers and businesses. That 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 was that was really it. I think there was underpinning that both a belief in the virtue of private initiative as a moral virtue, and not merely as an economic virtue, but ultimately as a it's a passionately held moral virtue, and also a belief in growth. And I think the belief in growth is important. That growth, even though, as you said, it was extensive growth, that growth was a good thing because growth meant that you had a more dynamic economy and society, which would create more opportunities for that private virtue of initiative to flourish. And so you needed to combine growth with initiative and they would interact and that would really give you the, the, the virtuous cycle or outcomes that you were seeking. I'd, I'm not sure that Menzies had a great deal of interest in economic policy in a narrow sense, and I suspect he didn't, but he had instincts. Yeah. And the instincts were really what mattered in the long run. And the instincts were not bad instincts. They were instincts that, that, that ultimately for growth to be sustainable, it had to be based on initiative. And for initiative to be possible, there had to be a relatively stable framework within which people could take long-term decisions. And that's what his government tried to do. And Henry, that focus on the individual, I mean, really a, a key part of, of liberalism, of Menzies' liberalism, I think really differentiates the way a Menzies-led government delivered national development versus how a, a Labor alternative government would have delivered it. Um, he's different from your the sort of liber, the liberal economic tradition that came that came um, in the 70s and 80s where you know there was obviously dismantling of tariff protection I mean tariff protection was a key feature of the 50s and 60s and it was it was again bipartisan the, the 
industries were protected by high tariffs and there were subsidies and it was, you know, marketing schemes for the agricultural industry that protected markets, Australian, um, uh, the Australian domestic markets. But, and then another feature, of course, was um, the wage arbitration system that was, again, pretty pretty arcane and, and, and pretty illiberal in, in some respects. But how would a labour alternative have done things differently? Well, let me just say at the outset, Menzies was different, not only relative to the Liberals of the 1980s or of the, broadly of the, the period since then, but also to, in important respects, to deconite liberalism. yes. Econite liberalism had a much greater emphasis on public enterprise and state initiative. The Menzies era, in that sense, was a break both with Econite liberalism and also a sharp break with the philosophy which was then dominant in uh, the ALP. In terms of the ALP, the immediate post-war period was a period which perhaps saw the apogee of, uh, of socialization. And this wasn't merely in Australia. It was in Labour Party in, in, in the UK and Labour Party in, in New Zealand as well. There was a very strong belief that governments should control the commanding heights of, of the economy and that crucial parts of the economy should be owned by government. So you wouldn't only have had instruments such as tariff protection and the industrial relations system, which again were really contexts within which private initiative could occur. You would have had very significant government ownership of large parts of the economy. The Australian economy had Labour won the contested election that brought Menzies to office, had, had Labour won that election, you would have had probably nationalization of the banking system. You'd have had certainly for sure nationalization of the steel industry, more extensive nationalization of coal. It, it's, it's difficult to know where it would have ended, but uh, what can be said for sure is that we would have looked much more like the UK did under Atlee in terms of the range of industries that would be brought under government ownership and control. And then the task of dismantling all of that would, of course, have been much greater. And, and pretty painful. And very painful, as it was in the UK. Yeah. Uh, and that really remained the case with Labour, at least in theory, through the Whitlam government. Um, now, notably, by the 1960s, significant parts of Labour had moved away from that. But nonetheless, as the dominant view in Labour that remained really until until the end of the Whitlam era, as we saw with Rex Connor, Connorism, and and so on. So yes, Menzies may look more interventionist than certainly the Howard government proved to be, but it was part of a move away from the colonial socialism that had been embraced by Deaconite liberalism towards an economy in which the government's role was more narrowly defined, at least in terms of industry support. Henry, I wanted to ask you um, too about, about 
the Menzies government attitude to government debt. When when Menzies came in uh, his second term as Prime Minister in 1949, Australia's public debt stood at 120% of GDP, which is um, by well by even by current standards with the COVID crisis, that's pretty enormous. But by the time he retired in 1966, that had dropped to below 50%. He was his governments were very cautious when it came to fiscal policy. They kept their spending under very tight control and this made ensured that the private sector savings could finance investment rather rather than government. That that um emphasis made the Australian economy a stronger economy and of course was able to foster more dynamism in investment and and in the the, the structure and flavor of the Australian economy. That must be real legacy of the Menzies government and and into into the future too we can look back on that as as um something that really set up the modern Australian economy for success surely yeah well of course when um Menzies returned to office there was a, a significant debt burden associated to a large extent with having funded the war and so this was really the legacy of World War II that remained in place and and that to some extent hung over the economy. The, the key elements in bringing public debt levels down were, first of all, very strong economic expansion, which meant that GDP increased so that the debt to GDP ratio fell very quickly. Uh, and secondly, uh, low but not in not not zero inflation, so there was some inflating away of the debt, and of course interest rates were kept very low relative to the growth rate of the economy, and so the cost of debt servicing kept falling. And those elements, together with fiscal restraint on the part of government, then allowed the debt burden to fall steeply over time. The fiscal restraint had two aspects to it. It was first of all a degree of fiscal conservatism in terms of the broad settings of policy, keeping deficits under control, but also a fairly tight rein on public spending. And and that's an interesting and important story because, of course, it contrasts sharply with what happened in the UK and in continental Europe particularly in the UK. And uh, the essence of that was really that the Menzies government did not expand social welfare expenditure the way social welfare expenditure was being expanded uh, almost everywhere else in the advanced economies. And that's, uh, that, that, that's a very fundamental part of the Menzies story. Now, why was it possible to not increase social welfare expenditure? After all, social welfare expenditure, virtually everywhere else in the advanced economies, is growing rapidly. The same forces you would think would have been at work in Australia. And to my mind, a key part of understanding that, and that then ties in with the broader institutional context of the Menzies era was that we had a different social welfare bargain. Right, okay. 
we did have a social welfare bargain and it was very significant social welfare bargain, but it was a different social welfare bargain. And that social welfare bargain was that people could get a job. Yeah. And the essence of that making that happen in, in the mindset of the era was really the combination of the industrial relations system and the tariff system. And so they provided first an assurance that incomes would be sufficient, satisfactory, however you want to call it, that there would be a decent income that people could earn if they worked. And second, that there would be jobs. And so, again, this was a kind of do-it-yourself or do-it-for-yourself system that made it possible for people to have jobs and to support themselves by having a job and so to not require social welfare. On that, there was also a very substantial social consensus because particularly the unions were strongly in favour of it, increased their membership. They had always argued that 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 you should have, if there was unemployment, you should have work relief rather than welfare. You should give people jobs rather than giving them payments. And of course, in political terms, it, it was a more attractive option for people than to live off handouts that uh, that that governments gave. And to understand why the, the the system of tariff protection and the industrial relations system were so well accepted and persistent, it's crucial to understand that they were seen as allowing that to happen. They were seen as a form, really, of not in the disparaging sense, welfare, but of income assurance that created opportunities for people to do better for themselves and and, and their families. Uh, indeed, the whole system was geared to that. For instance, for a large part of the 1950s and early 1960s, uh, migrants who were not British citizens did not qualify for unemployment benefits. And so, or if they did, only at the end of a fairly lengthy period. And so you had to ensure there were jobs because uh, otherwise people had no, no, no real source of income. And in that sense, the social consensus was based on this notion that, that, that you provided uh, income security not through public spending, but through other arrangements. And that allowed the government, allowed the Menzies government to, at a time when other countries were increasing social welfare expenditure and making costly promises in terms of social welfare, not not to do so. And that really ended and then became otios once we shifted to a system of direct welfare payments, substantial direct welfare payments, which largely occurred under Whitlock and then continued in the, in the Fraser years, and at that point, uh, we provided income assurance, not not through the means that had been at the heart of the Menzies package, but 
almost the same way as the other welfare states did. So, Henry, I thought I'd end our discussion today by asking you then what are the long-term consequences of the tariff protection system and the um, industrial arbitration system. So we have a movement from the Menzies era where the, 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 the sort of social contract was you get, we have these, these structures in place so you get a job and that is your form of welfare that you, you have basically a guaranteed income through a guaranteed job. I mean, especially in Adelaide where there were only three people unemployed. Moving to the Whitlam era where there was an expansion of social welfare and a real real shift in, in the way Australian attitudes towards an income guarantee were were placed. So but we're still left with these the tariff protection system and the industrial arbitration system and we have the, you know, industrial arbitration system still to this day. So what while we have you know almost minimal tariffs, I mean, I think they're under the uh, um, average tariff in Australia is under five percent now. It, it's it's almost nothing. But the long term consequences of those structures were uh, you know they were pretty hard to dismantle. Yes, I, look, I, I'd like to say something about the the, the 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 tariff system and the industrial relations system about why both of those were so pivotal in in the Menzies era. First on, on, on the tariff, but to some extent the two are, are pretty closely related. Again, you have to go back to the context of that period. And the context of that period was a context where, even though now we look uh, on the Menzies era as a period of very sustained economic growth, but in reality, at the beginning of the period, uh, there's a great deal of economic uncertainty and insecurity, just as there was a great deal of geopolitical uncertainty and insecurity. And national development was not merely an economic objective, it was crucially a political objective. There was the sense that Australia had been caught short in 1941-42, in part because our industrial base was too small, we hadn't rearmed sufficiently, population was too small, it was demobilized, and we needed national development if we were to survive in what looked at the time like an extremely hostile and dangerous world. Without national development, it was thought that our survival prospects would would have been extremely grim. That would have been incredibly motivating then for any government faced with those circumstances. I mean, remember that Menzies was very focused on what was known at the period as the great world struggle. Mm. Great world struggle between the free world and the communist world. And and that was an overwhelming presence in public affairs and an existential issue, not an economic issue, an existential issue that framed everything else. Now, it wasn't only the geopolitical environment that was extremely uncertain. The economic environment was also very uncertain. One thing that was certain in that environment in terms of the economics was that when you looked around the world, and particularly at the countries which had been traditional markets, there had been during the 1920s and especially 1930s, a very significant move to protection, and especially to agricultural protections. And there was no sign whatsoever 
that agricultural protectionism was going to disappear. On the contrary, as the 1950s progressed, the formation of the European Economic Community and the decision to establish the common agricultural policy meant that there was every sign that Australia, as an agricultural primary exporter, would struggle to find the markets it needed to sustain its prosperity. And so there was a great deal of what became known as export pessimism, that our export prospects were poor, that yes, there might be moves to dismantle at least the worst features of manufacturing protectionism around the world. But even that was very slow. That really only occurred in the 1970s on a significant scale. Uh, but that as far as agriculture was concerned, the political bargain in almost every country with very strong farming sectors still in Europe, in the United States, the political bargain was that they would be very highly protected. And as a result, our export prospects were poor, our terms of trade looked set to deteriorate, and if we remained dependent on primary production, then that would significantly constrain our income growth going forward. And it was in that context that economic policy was set. And it's, uh, to my mind, it's one of the great mistakes of people looking back on that era, not to understand the fear that there was and a reasonable fear about what Australia's prospects were. Now, two things fundamentally changed. The first thing was that it turned out that even with deteriorating prices in real terms, world prices in real terms for agricultural commodities, and they didn't deteriorate as much as expected, but even with deteriorating prices in real terms for agricultural commodities, our agricultural sector could increase its productivity so rapidly, and it did, that it remained highly profitable or reasonably profitable. Now, we managed to mess it up through support schemes, but nonetheless, underlying comparative advantage in agriculture remained strong. The second, even greater factor was the mining booms. Beginning in the early 1960s and accelerating through the 1960s, it became clear that we were going to have this enormous mining sector and that that would take over the locomotive role that wool and to some extent wheat had played until then. And so that the export pessimism, which framed economic policy okay, and meant that we, in a way, we could not afford manufactured imports, that export pessimism really vanished in the, the, the period that stretches from then to now. And that, that was a, just a huge change in mindset. When the Vernon Report was produced in the late 1960s or mid-1960s, issued in the late 1960s, the Vernon Report, which is the fundamental review of Australian economic policy, the Vernon Report was imbued with export pessimism, thought our terms of trade would continue to deteriorate virtually forever. Well, that's a bit of an exaggeration, but certainly that we faced deteriorating terms of trade. Uh, by that point, in fact, the situation had turned around and we were in the, in, in, on, on, in, in the throes of the first mining boom. Once those things happened, then we could move away from the old system mm. of, of 
of tariff protection. And that was really the key condition. Now, was that painless? No, it wasn't painless. Uh, structural adjustment never is. Was it uh, a, a good thing to move away? Yes. Should we have started moving away earlier? Probably, but you know, hindsight is a great thing. You needed to have a degree of consensus, some consensus. And until then, we really didn't have it if you were to make such a fundamental change. Now, industrial relations is to some extent the same story. There was a perception that our history was a tumultuous history of industrial relations mm. and that the industrial relations system, for all its flaws, provided a degree of social peace and provided a context within which economic expansion could occur. It's, again, important to remember the situation we were in. Uh, at the time, the industrial relations system and the commission in particular had its critics, had very harsh critics. Those critics were the communists in the unions and the communist control unions. They saw the industrial relations system as a capitalist plot, <laughs> the plot to keep down the workers. Because okay? it did keep wages pretty, you know, pretty stable. And it kept wages yeah. under control yeah. until the 1960s when an overheated labour market mm. essentially blew the system up. But, but the system's critics, right, were those who believed that it was essentially a capitalist plot. And the coalition that supported the system was in many respects quite a conservative coalition. Mm. It was the people who formed the DLP, who were strongly entrenched in the unions. It was the conservative right wing of labor. And it was a large part of manufacturing uh, enterprise, which saw the system as providing a degree of stability. Mm. Uh, and it also allowed, must be said, a degree of cartelization of the economy. It took wages out of competition, did all kinds of bad things. But why was it so well accepted? Because it underpinned social consensus. And perhaps most of all, it seemed to work. It seemed to work. Uh, if you uh, go back to... Uh, the accounts of the visits that were paid by, you know, foreign experts coming to Australia in the 50s and 60s, and you read what they had to say, they were dumbstruck in admiration uh, at our industrial relations system. They thought it was an absolute little gem. Okay? You were coming from the UK, they thought it was marvelous. And, of course, the problems that it created were 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 largely hidden problems. There were distortions in the labor market and so on and so forth. But uh, in a context of very strong growth, uh, they were the frost on the tidal wave of history, or so they were seen. Yeah, they were, you know, everyone knew by the 1960s that there were real problems, but they thought, you know, this was on balance, Good. Yes, with the, some the, be the benefits outweighed the negatives. The benefits yeah. outweighed the cost. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, I, I think the great difficulty we've had is that the better parts of the system have gone and the worst parts of the system have survived. <laughs> and 
and and that's 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 really the problem. And we haven't really sorted out what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. No. But nonetheless, uh, if you say should Menzies have gotten rid of that system, then I'd say, well, in the context of the time, that would have seemed suicidal. Well, and Menzies was, as you said earlier, um, a great pragmatist, and uh, and he yeah. could read he could read the political moment and the and the zeitgeist, right? And uh, and, 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 he, th- and he was fundamentally he was conservative. Yes, yeah, he was conservative yes, he, in the following sense that if something isn't broken, he wasn't going to tear it down. <laughs> he wasn't going to tear it down. No, no. And if it, you know, if it wasn't creating problems. He he did do lots of things to the industrial relations system. Don't 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 think he was he was indifferent to it. For instance, he he substantially increased the penalties associated with illegal strikes and stoppages. So he was very concerned to make the system work as it should. Uh, he had a terrible relationship with Richard Kirby, who was the long term. Uh, czar of the system, and he believed was a troublemaker. But nonetheless, as far as the institution was concerned, his broad attitude was to be respectful of institutions. Uh, unless an institution was broken, uh, there was something to be said for institutional stability as a value in itself. I think that's a um, wonderful moment to finish our discussion on. Um, thank you so much, Henry, for um, talking to us about Menzies' economic le- legacy, one that I think is um, full of a lot of uh, misunderstandings and lack of context of the history of the times and the, and the, and the, the, the priorities and um, strategic realities of the times as well. So um, you have illuminated me and no doubt our audience and I very much appreciate your time um, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day in uh, in Paris, you lucky thing, out of lockdown. <laughs> Thank you very much, Georgina, and well done, incidentally, on the centre. It's a terrific initiative and I look forward to seeing it grow. Thank you. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.